This morning, we are continuing uh, in our summer series through the greatest sermon ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so God in the flesh sits down on a mountainside and speaks and preaches. Okay, it's the longest and most in-depth sermon we have recorded straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. Best sermon ever. Not because I'm preaching it, but because we're walking verse by verse through the 103 verses and three chapters that Jesus preached, recorded straight from him. And so we have taken the summer to walk through it verse by verse. And this morning we've come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 12, which culminates in what has become referred to as the golden standard of morality, also known as the golden rule. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the golden rule. You've probably heard the, the summary version, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Pretty popular. In fact, this is not even a, 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 a a hard concept to grasp, right? It's pretty simple. Like everyone pretty much agrees that if everybody would put this simple principle into action, the world would be a much better place, amen? So the truth is to teach the golden rule in itself is not a distinctly Christian teaching. Like there's nothing really different about it. Like everybody can get behind the golden rule. And most do, as long as everybody else is treating you the way you want to be treated. Right? I mean, otherwise this rule becomes more of a guideline. As soon as people stop treating you the way that you want to be treated, as long as people are interacting and doing what you want them to do, then the golden rule applies. But the moment you think somebody's not treating you fairly or you experience true injustice, then it goes from doing unto others as you would have them do unto you to I'm going to do unto others as they deserve or I'm going to do unto others as they have done to me, right? But it's the courage to be truly merciful without compromise that sets this teaching from Jesus Christ apart from everyone else because look, he actually did it. There's a lot of people that talk about it. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, this seems like a great idea and I'm going to live by this. But they don't do it. Really do it. Because this isn't the golden suggestion. <laughs> it's a rule, right? And so Jesus actually lived up to it. But he didn't just live up to it, guys. This is really important. He fulfilled it. And as we're going to see, he doesn't just water down the concept of the golden rule so that we can attain it in our own strength. Like a lot of times people want to talk about the golden rule and say, I live by the golden rule. But the reality is, is they have taken the golden rule standard that is way up here and they've brought it way down here so they can just kind of, I did it, and hop over it in their own strength. But in his mercy, Jesus points out how lofty this, role, this rule actually is. And he says that the entire Bible, guys, the law and the prophets, which means the entire Old Testament, is summed up in this rule. And he doesn't water it down. He says this, this standard is so high, none of you can attain it. But I can, and I will, and he did. And he fulfilled it for us. And he meets us in, his, in, in our weakness by his mercy and in his grace he fulfills that law that stood between us and God and he fulfilled it on our behalf. 
And because he did, he connects us at a heart level to the source and substance of the law itself. The why behind the what, the reason for the golden rule, the reason why God wants us to love God and love others. And he connects us in with the new commandment that he gives to us. So this is what sets Christianity apart. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you in John 13, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And he says, this is how they will know you are my disciples is by your love for one another. In other words, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're strong and you're awesome and you love people so well because you're so great. It means that you have tapped into the one who can love through you and we become conduits of the very spirit of Jesus to one another. The only people that can do that are those that have his spirit. And the only people that have his spirit are those who have placed their faith and hope in the cross that took the sin that was the barrier. We're going to talk about that. But the golden rule here is now no longer a barrier to God for those who are in Christ. Because he came and he fulfilled it, but he didn't lower the calling. He didn't water it down. In fact, this calling from God in his mercy, he's offered us the grace by removing the barrier, but the call itself has actually just gotten louder. Okay? So in fact, for the true Christian, the call now isn't simply to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The call now is to do unto others as God in Christ has done unto you. Ephesians 4 makes that clear. And so the focal point isn't our own strength and desire. It's faith in Christ's strength and desire. It's not our own capacity to show mercy. It's our faith in Christ's capacity to show mercy. And so remember the fifth beatitude or the state of blessing that Jesus described at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Like right three chapters ago, Matthew 5, verse 7, he comes right out of the gate and he starts giving us these characteristics of what the blessed life is actually like. And one of those characteristics in verse 7, Matthew 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so the golden rule is where that rubber meets the road. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to start with uh, this golden rule in, in Matthew 7, verse 12. So we're actually um, going to be walking through verse 7 through 12, but we're going to start with 12 and then sort of back engineer this thing and walk back up through it um, in order to get, uh, to take in what Jesus is teaching us here in the context, okay? So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to start with the golden rule in verse 12 and then sort of go backwards and walk back up through this text. And I've got three things that I want to point out as sort of a roadmap for us, okay? So number one is the rule. Number two is the gift. And number three is the action. Okay, so the rule, number one, the rule, the golden rule by itself is a proof of failure. Do you think you've lived up to this rule? You're wrong. We'll talk about that. Number two, the gift. Jesus offers us the gift of access to God through the Holy Spirit. And then number three, the action. The practicing the gift of the Spirit requires regular intentionality in prayer to ask, seek, and knock. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. To do unto others as Christ has done unto you, 
requires continual asking, seeking, and knocking on the door of heaven. So, let's start with the first point about the rule. The golden rule by itself is a proof of failure. Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So again, the reason (laughs) this is such a popular concept is because it makes sense. It makes sense to everybody. You don't have to be a Christian to realize this is a good thing. And, And so this is also why every major world religion has some version of the golden rule. I've got a lot of quotes for you this morning, so sit tight, all right? Um, we'll start with uh, 600 years before Jesus Christ was born, or incarnate, I should say, right? 600 years before Christ, a man named Mahavira, who was a leader in Jainism in ancient India, said this, do unto others as you would like to be done by. Mahavira. Okay, sounds familiar. Socrates, six, uh, sorry, 400 years before Christ, Socrates said, do not do to others what angers you if done to you by others. Okay. All right. Socrates. And then even just a generation before Jesus, a celebrated rabbi named Hillel the Elder, just a generation before Jesus, he said, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow. That is the whole Torah, which means law. The rest, which is the prophets, is the explanation. Go and learn. Hillel the Elder, right? And so even atheists use this concept as a sort of code to justify their own morality. You've probably heard this before from people that say, you know, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in God, but, you know, I'm a good person. How do they justify it? Well, actually, a man named Jesse Ventura, remember this guy? Jesse Ventura, a former pro wrestler turned actor and somehow, you know, predator, movie star, and then governor of Minnesota. (laughs) Like, welcome to America. Like, man who's not exactly known for his high intellect, but a self-proclaimed atheist, said this, there's no harm in saying you're an atheist. It doesn't mean you treat people any differently. I live by the golden rule to do unto others as you'd want to be treated. Jesse Ventura. Which is a nice sentiment, right? But the truth is, across the board, they all try to live up to this rule in their own strength, but everyone from Mahavira to Jesse Ventura, they fall way short of this rule that is a rule, not a suggestion. And so there seems to be two extremes people tend toward when it comes to trying to live by this golden rule in their own strength. Two ways they sort of water it down so that they can get over it in their own mind. But they don't, and it's still a massive barrier between them and God. Like, get the visual. We use this visual a lot here. Imagine a path. Like the gospel is a path of life. Jesus is walking on this path and, and, and imagine a ditch on either side of that path. Okay, you got, a path, you got a ditch on the left, you got a ditch on the right. And on the left side, say for the sake of illustration, let's call the ditch on the left the Ted Talk Karen ditch. Okay? Now if your name is Karen, 
I apologize. <laughs> um, you're probably tired of getting picked on, so again, I'm sorry. Uh, but this is actually about a lady named Karen. <laughs> okay, Karen Armstrong. Karen won the $100,000 TED Talk prize uh, in 2008 for a talk she gave on the golden rule and empathy. And her approach to the golden rule represents the far left ditch that many run, uh, it, 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 many run to and fall into as they ignore who Jesus is and what he actually said. And so Karen made the case that the answer to all the world's problems is simply empathy. So she called it the, quote, imaginative, imaginative act of putting ourselves in the place of another. You might be familiar with the fact that empathizing, empathy has become a pretty hot word. It's like a, a very popular phrase today, recently in society, especially in the past 15 years. And so 15 years ago, she gave this talk. So she even said that we need to stop, quote, emphasizing the dogmatic and intolerant aspects of our faith. In other words, in the name of empathy, she has set aside truth and even Jesus himself. And so TED Talk Karen is the heartbeat behind the Coexist bumper sticker. But Jesus desires that we do more than simply exist. He desires more than just being numb to what truly awaits in eternity and just putting it off and just saying, I'm not going to deal with what might be true. Jesus invites us into abundant life and abundant life even now even today. And that life comes only through truth. Say truth. And it's the truth of who He is. Not blinding yourself to Jesus and trying to figure it out in your own strength in the ditch looking to one another and only reacting to each other and trying to exist with each other like the blind leading the blind in the dark. Like he is the truth and the way and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. And even if you don't believe that, then just give him a look. So Jesus is the path. And so to Ted Talk Karen, she's twisted the golden rule into a standard of living that excludes any need for Jesus or objective truth at all for that matter. Like the result is an aimless degradation of meaning, like delusional sheep wandering away from the good shepherd into that dark ditch as wolves encircle. And so Ted Talk Karen imagines a world of drowning victims with no firm foundation, no lifeline, no Jesus, no good shepherd, no truth, just an invitation to slowly drown together in the far left ditch of meaninglessness. Guys, that is not the point of the golden rule. And it's a perversion of true compassion, empathy, and love all together. In fact, in between services, someone reminded me that one of the definitions of uh, empathy has been twisted into this concept of people calling it the platinum rule. Have you heard this? The platinum rule in society today is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Again, it's a ditch. And it just excludes God entirely. And so, now, that's the far left ditch, okay? But there's another ditch. On the other side of the gospel path, 
the far right ditch. And we'll call this the John Wayne ditch. Okay? Now, I'm not knocking John Wayne here. I grew up on the Duke. Like, I watched it with my dad. There's a lot of great lessons and qualities there. All right? Praise God. I, I, I grew up in a Carolina cowboy home, right? Like, it was good times, but um, I want you to hear this. John Wayne ain't Jesus. Right? And John Wayne does not represent biblical masculinity. He does not. Jesus does. This is important. Because if you're in that far right ditch, you might think that John Wayne is pretty close. Just like those who are in the far left ditch think that Ted Talk Karen is pretty close to what Christianity should be. There's even a book called The John Wayne Code. Have you seen this? Anybody seen this? The John Wayne Code, which lists 10 commandments, I mean codes, to live by from John Wayne. Like, I can't make this up. Like, the fourth commandment, I mean code, says, treat others with the same respect with which you wish to be treated. Now, sounds familiar, right? And at first, I I gotta tell you, Like, I don't know if it's the Carolina in me or the American in general, but just that honestly sounds like, sounds like a pretty solid. But honestly, there's a subtle self-exalting twist to it, which actually ignores Jesus. In fact, one of the most famous John Wayne quotes is from his movie, The Shootist, where he says, quote, I won't be wronged. I won't be insulted. I won't be laid a hand on. I don't do these things to other people and I require the same from them. Again, sounds solid. Like there's a part of my flesh that's just like, yeah, I I can can get down with that. That's, That's a solid code to live by. And I don't think I'm the only one in here that that resonates with. But this is the danger because just because something resonates with you doesn't mean it's good or true. Jesus is not saying do unto others as you would have them do unto you as long as you agree with the way they're treating you. That is not what he's saying. Like, let's actually look at what Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in the flesh, the embodiment of biblical masculinity actually has to say. Luke 6, verse 31, this is what he says. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Sound familiar? This is Jesus talking. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. People living in their flesh. People living not by the Spirit or by truth, but their own concept of what is right and wrong. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, uh, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So he's speaking strength over you. He's speaking to a deeply secure people here. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father 
is merciful. John Wayne's golden rule is about rewarding good behavior. It's about reciprocating and, and giving, giving what you deem to be deserved or not. It puts us on the throne of fault-finding judgment. And yet, praise God, that God himself has not treated us that way in Jesus Christ. Like The one who is truly the judge has not given you what you deserve. Because A, if he had, none of you would be breathing right now, and neither would I. One day he will right all wrongs. And this is why we need grace through the cross, because we all deserve and stand condemned before him, but for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is true Christianity. And so he says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Guys, this isn't weakness. It's a symptom of deep security and true strength from those who have received grace and approval and acceptance and security from their father. This is the overflow of one who stands secure upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. This is, this is one who's not bound by the approval or disapprovals of the fallen world. This is a game changer. Like these are the actions of a son who knows he's loved by his heavenly father. And the real point here is that none of this is possible without deeply knowing the love, grace, and approval of your heavenly father. Because this is the gospel, that God himself became a man and he lived the life we could not live and cannot live apart from him. And he died the death that we all deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave. The barrier between humanity and God himself was bridged, covered, the barrier was taken away through the resurrection. He, he rises from the grave and he paves the way to eternal life with God the Father. And it's not an eternal life that starts one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our hope and our faith in what he has done for us to bridge the gap. And when we do, the moment we do, we receive his presence and his goodness and his spirit and it comes to us and infiltrates us and even changes us from the inside out, giving us a new heart and a new identity. And it doesn't mean you figure it all out immediately, but it begins, he draws you close and he says, let me tell you who you are now. Let me speak what is true over you. Let me tell you your identity and give you this firm foundation and this deep security. This is the whole process of sanctification is like this. You haven't arrived and yet that doesn't mean that it's not already true. And this is the power of why, this is the reason why we have to press in and hear him and listen to him and not all of this, but his word and lean into what God is telling us to tap into, again, his identity, that firm foundation, that deep security, his spirit calling you a beloved child. And when, you, when people see you respond to this golden calling out of that place of security, it's going to remind them, you have a father. You have a heavenly father. And that's what he's saying. 
See, this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 6. This is what he's saying in Matthew 7. This is why Jesus commands us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You're set apart by the love that you have because it comes straight from me. Ephesians 4. And I would say this is the true upgrade to the golden rule that the resurrection does make it platinum. I'd, I'd say diamond level, right? Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How many of you know you can grieve the Holy Spirit? Right? Like, don't give in to this whole thing where it's like, God is always just doing backflips over me because he sees me and he's just like, they're perfect. No. He sees you and he loves you, but he's not blind to the struggles we face. True love is not blind, but it does love unconditionally in the midst of it. And because he loves you, when we lean into sin, it grieves him. He mourns it because he loves you. And it's not about salvation. Look at this. He says here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. These people he's talking to, they're sealed for the day of redemption. You got salvation. He's got it. 10 out of 10. But they're still grieving the Holy Spirit. How? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Those things grieve his heart. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. It's pretty golden. Diamond status, right? This is why joining a local church is such an important part of following Jesus and demonstrating the grace that we've received and the love that we're receiving. Like this is part of how the gift of heaven actually breaks in and breaks out in the midst of, of this world on earth as it is in heaven because the church is not designed to be perfect. The church is designed to be perfectly loved and perfectly demonstrate grace to a world that doesn't understand it. And so if you come in and you go, wow, look at all the hypocrites. It's like, welcome. We got one more for you. We got a seat for you too. Like this is the power of looking to him and going, I have not arrived I am not perfect, but I am perfectly loved, and I want to fix my eyes on you. Ask, seek, knock. Follow you. Help us. And not just proclaim grace, but demonstrate it. Because nobody said this would be easy. Nobody. It's why it requires intentional, continual, daily reliance on His Spirit. Which, as it turns out, is exactly the context for this verse. So again, notice the golden rule. Verse 12, we're in verse 12 here. We're back engineering it, but it begins with so. And whenever you see the verse start with so, it means that it's connected to a larger flow of thought. So like when the scriptures say, therefore, you should always ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. And when Jesus says so, we should ask, what's the flow that leads to the so, right? So. When we look back at the context of the golden rule, surprise, surprise, the context of active access and intentional relationship with God as our good father is the flow. Which leads me to the second point about the gift. 
Jesus offers us the gift of access to God through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. Matthew 7, verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks for asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you see the context? The idea here is that God is not some, some demonic entity that you have to manipulate and get to look at you and give you what you want and he's just withholding. This is your heavenly Father. This is what Jesus is trying to introduce us to. This is the kind of relationship that he's drawing us into, inviting us into. Now, notice, before I continue here, I didn't say gifts, plural, of the Spirit. Like, the truth is that all the gifts of the Spirit, which are active, we, we are love it, thankful that God gives us the gifts of the Spirit. That's a whole sermon in itself. But this is, the truth is that all the gifts plural of the Spirit, are really just unique ways in which the gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit manifests within each individual Christian. And so in other words, the gifts, plural, of the Spirit aren't separate from Him. They're unique manifestations of Him in each individual life because the Holy Spirit Himself is the ultimate grace gift of God. This is how we unify. It's the power of the, the oneness and how God uniquely unites and manifests within a, a, a local um, covenant community. And so, look at how Jesus puts it. Luke 11. Follow me now. Luke 11, verse 11. Jesus says this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Yeah. <laughs> I love this. I love it, this is, some people think that Luke is just reinterpreting that, that Matthew and Luke are looking at the same event, right? And this is like Luke's version of the same event and Matthew's version of the same event and Luke is just remembering it one way and Matthew's remembering it another way. I don't think that's what's happening. What I think is happening is that Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew recorded it and then later he gives another sermon to another people at a different time and except this time he just kind of is like, remember that last time when I said that, that how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts? Well, it didn't really resonate with them so now I'm going to make it clear that the ultimate gift that God wants to give you is his spirit. And so this is, again, Jesus is offering us the gift of access to God through the Holy Spirit. It's the gift that we're actually after. It's at the root of all of our prayers, isn't it? I mean, I want you to think about this. Really, back out of the materialistic world that we live in and think, what are we really after when we ask God for good things? Like, what are, what's the root of our prayers? Guys, he himself is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Like we need his counsel, his wisdom, his care, his approval, his power, his provision even. And his provision for what? To resource us for what? Good things like the expansion of his kingdom and to take care of our families and do all these things. Why? Because he cares about those things even more than you do when they're actual good things for you. 
And so we can recognize here that even we can, we don't need to have to rely upon our own cognitive capacities to figure this whole thing out or, or, or make it all right in our own strength. Like there's so much comfort in this because it informs the way that we pray. Like, hear this. Like, we don't have to come to him in this nervous fashion, like we're going to say the wrong thing or get the incantation wrong. Like, this is a way that a, that a demonic people actually pray in a way that's just like, he hates me, and I've got to figure out the precise language in order to get him to do what I want him to do because he's really withholding on me. That's not who your heavenly father is. Like, he is like bursting to give you good gifts. Like this is who he is. But he's not going to give you something that you want more than you want him because that would put a wedge between you and him which wouldn't be a blessing, it would be a curse. Right? So like we don't have to come to him with this nervousness. We can come to him as beloved children come to a good father and ask and trust with open hands to receive. And trusting even in the timing. That's where he promises to meet us, right in the midst of whatever it is that we're dealing with or asking for. So some people, again, they get so wrapped up in how we sound or saying it just right. Or maybe the last time you prayed, things didn't go the way you wanted. So you think maybe God didn't answer or even hear me because I didn't get what I wanted. Right? But that's not how, again, a beloved child approaches their good dad. Guys, Sometimes in this world, our dads, maybe they're struggling financially and they can't really give you even what they want to give you. Or maybe you think, well, he's just holding out on me because he's angry with me. Or, or maybe, maybe he doesn't know what's best, right? I know as a father, sometimes I'm like, man, I want to give you this, but I'm not sure it's good for you. And I don't really know what to do. This is my own, like as a father, I'm like, I want to bless my son with this, but I'm not sure if it's going to be good for him. That's not how God is. He knows what's best for us. He doesn't, and he's not broke, right? Like he's not holding out on you. He's all powerful, he's all knowing, he's intimately aware of your circumstances and he's called us to come and ask because he wants relationship with you. He didn't just wind this thing up and set it loose and say, I'll see you when you die, you better behave. Like that's not, he's alive and he meets us here. And he's not, he, he wants you to come to him and ask because he wants relationship with you because he loves you. And he's not leaving your prayers unanswered. He wants you to pray and ask. Uh, Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Church, fantastic book. He says this, what we pray over lasts. What we don't, doesn't. It's profound. I don't have time to get all into the depth of that one. But I would agree with it. So ask, when we ask, when we pray, when we, we draw heaven down around all that we cover in prayer like a blanket of sovereign goodness. That doesn't exclude his absolute sovereignty. In fact, in his absolute sovereignty, he has said, ask me. Ask me. As Charles Spurgeon put it, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. So ask. In fact, the reason that we end with amen or amen is because we're saying it's in your hands now. That's what amen means. 
It means I trust you. It means so be it. Let it be. I'm in. I trust you. You're good and it's all going to be all good because I trust you. The Hebrew, the Hebrew root for the word amen is literally to be reliable, firm, fixed, secure. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen? So as Tim Keller put it, this is one of my favorite quotes. You'll probably hear me use this one a lot. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. I'm going to say that one again because y'all didn't get that one. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. This is what we're asking for. This is what we're leaning into. This is the kind of relationship Jesus is inviting us all deeper into with the Father. And it's the kind of living, trusting interaction with God as our good Father that we're all called to cultivate to ask and to trust him. It might not have happened in the timing that you want, but that's not because he's ignoring you or you didn't say it right. He's going to reach down to the bottom of it and answer it in the way that you would have prayed if you knew what he knows. But he still calls you to ask. Now, some of us may need a redeemed view of what it means to have a father, right? Some say, I don't like to think of God as father because I had a bad father or maybe no father and it's a hard concept to grab. But that doesn't mean that you should toss out the idea of God as father altogether. In fact, Jesus presents God as our heavenly father to us. He wants us to know God Almighty as heavenly father and he presents it to us 189 times in the gospels. That's intentional. And so it simply means it's time to get to know what a truly good father is, to redeem this, because our earthly father, fathers are just shadows of our heavenly father. And he can redeem this, and he wants to and desires to, but it requires extra intentionality to cultivate that relationship. Because prayer, again, is a gift. Prayer is the access point to God. And for the healthy Christian, guys, prayer becomes as natural, or maybe I should say naturally supernatural, as breathing, right? Like, it is, and it's just as crucial for spiritual vitality and spiritual life. Is prayer is just like breathing. In fact, the reason the word for Holy Spirit in Greek and Hebrew, um, I think there is a reason that the word for Holy Spirit in Greek and Holy Spirit in Hebrew is also the word for breath. That's powerful. And in prayer, we breathe ourselves out and we breathe him in. And just like when things get difficult in sports or even war, and an athlete or a soldier needs to focus on their breathing, this is often how it is with prayer. Like when things get difficult spiritually, the best thing you can do is to get intentionally focused on your prayer life. And just in case you didn't know it, if you're in Christ, you're on the front lines of a spiritual war. That's real. Whether you like it or not or recognize it or not, this is very real. And so take action and breathe. Which leads me to the third point about the action. Practicing the gift of the Spirit requires regular intentionality in prayer. So ask Seek and knock, which is a very active action, right? 
Matthew 7, verse 7 through 8. Again, we're walking back up, so we're at the top now. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now remember, walking backwards through this passage, but if you've been in the sermon series with us, then you know that what precedes this call to prayer right here, the thing that precedes ask, seek, and knock is a call to wisdom in the midst of relational strain. He's just been talking about anxiety and judgmentalism. Okay? So in the midst of all of that, Jesus calls his people to lean into their heavenly father for help in navigating a very difficult world in which we need discernment and wisdom. And so in the moment when you find yourself in the throes of these kinds of trials, which how many of you know that relational trials are the most difficult trials, right? And they're the ones that require discernment. And that's exactly what he's just been talking about when dealing with our own anxiety and even judgmentalism. And so he calls us to a place of discernment and wisdom and then immediately flows into ask, seek, knock. And in the moment when you find yourself in the throes of these kinds of trials, you're probably going to be wondering, God, where are you? God, we need your help. God, We can't do this without you. And you're right. And and you know what Jesus says in response to all that? Ask, seek, knock. You came to the end of yourself. That's good. Get out of the ditch and look to me. I love how... The, uh, Dane Ortland is an author, pastor and author. Ray Ortland's son, actually. So this is a pastor's kid seeing it all. Um, I actually know some of the stuff that he has seen. Uh, and and it's, so it's extra palpable for me. I, but this is a quote that he wrote about prayer. And I love this quote. He says this. It's an invitation. Talking about prayer. Prayer is an invitation to step off of that hamster wheel by looking to the spirit of Jesus and letting him lead us forward as we commune with him. Wonderfully simple, widely neglected, deeply liberating. A church with rich history, flawless music, powerful preaching, amazing childcare, a paid-off mortgage, and stellar attendance, but sleepily operating out of the resources of their flesh instead of prayer is headed toward tragic inconsequentiality. A church riddled with dysfunctions, embattled and beleaguered, unimpressive in preaching, off-tune musically, the slides don't work, the sound isn't working. Small in numbers and without resources, but quietly collapsing into the free fall of faith-fueled praying is a church that will bless this world in a thousand surprising ways and leave a mark that reverberates through eternity. Now, we're going to get our childcare right, and we're going to get the sound up, and we got some great worship team, right? Amen? Praise God for excellence. But look, the point is his spirit. The point is his kingdom. The point is Jesus. He's what we rely on. 
And praise God for the people that are downstairs taking care of the kids. Amen? There's a place you can sign up online. It's a fantastic... I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. I got to keep rolling. But this is what I want you to hear. Listen, I really want you to hear Christ's heart in this invitation to pray here. I want you to listen as I read these verses again. Seven, verse seven and eight. Listen to this. He says, just get, get like, don't forget who's talking. God in the flesh says, he hung the stars. Ask. Ask. And it will be given to you. It's a promise. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And just in case you're like, I don't, I don't know. It's like he knows that we have trouble believing this. He says it again in verse 8. For everyone, say everyone. Everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. These are promises. And again, the biggest issue that we often face isn't that we're asking for the wrong things. Like, yes, I get sometimes if we're asking for a portion, God's like, you don't need a portion or wrap that thing around a telephone pole. Right? Like, I get that sometimes we might ask for the wrong things and he's like, I don't know. But sometimes, hey, ask for a Porsche. You get a Porsche? Come pick me up. We'll go for a ride. It'd be fantastic. But the point here, though, is that... <laughs> The, the point isn't that we're asking for the wrong things. As we said before, God is so good that he'll reach down to the bottom of your prayers and answer it in a way that you would have asked if you knew what he knows. So the real issue isn't that we're asking for the wrong things. The bigger issue is that we don't ask. The greatest hurdle is that we detach from him. We live in our ditches, self-sufficient in ourselves, trying to hop over our little laws that we've watered down to the point where we think we can do it anyway. And we cast our judgments on those who can't do it in the way that we do it, and then even God for setting it up that way, which he didn't. And we never even look to him as our place of reliance and promise in the first place. Theologian N.T. Wright, he put it like this, but for most of us, the problem is not that we are e too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. So Jesus just preached a few verses earlier in the sermon, Matthew 6, 33, but seek, say seek, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. So I'm going to start by aligning with, which, with that which we know God desires us to ask for and promises to answer. Like if you're not used to asking, if you're not there yet, and you're not quite sure, you know, I'm, I'm new to this whole prayer thing, here's a great place to start because he promises, we know you pray this, he will answer it, okay? We know that God loves to answer prayers for wisdom. Say wisdom. We learn that both from King Solomon and 1 Kings 3 through 4, and from James 1, 5, which says, the, the half-brother of Jesus put it like this, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. After all, this passage is in the context of the need for wisdom and discernment. So, are you asking? I remember the first time I really read Solomon's story here in 1 Kings, and I, I was in Orlando Orlando, Florida on a training, and I remember sitting beside of a pond and reading over the story of Solomon. God told Solomon, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And he asks for wisdom and God's like, that's what I'm talking about. 
And he, and he answers it. And, and I remember praying, this was 20 years ago, and I remember praying um, that God would bless me with every branch of wisdom, insight, and discernment, that he would be glorified within me. And I probably haven't gone over the past 20 years, I probably haven't gone two days without praying that prayer at some point. And 20 years later, let me tell you something, I feel a very deep lack of wisdom in my life. I, want, I have a hunger. I'm like, man, God, I need more wisdom. Like I've not arrived by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I got a long way to go, but you should have seen the dummy I was 20 years ago. Right? Like he's generous. He's good. Notice Jesus doesn't just leave it at asking also. This is important. Like we tend to be way too passive in our prayer life. But Jesus calls us to ask, to seek, and to knock. There's a progressive intentionality with the way we approach the throne here. There's an expectation that we are to bring with us a faith that he is a good father. And he actually wants to answer these prayers. So we don't just ask for good gifts. We ask and then we seek. We go on a search for them. Proverbs 25, the glory of God is to conceal things and the glory of kings is to seek them out. And in that, there's relationship. So we don't just ask God for wisdom, we seek it out through the scriptures and gospel community and wise counsel, right? We seek out the doors of mentors and experience. And if those doors are shut or even seem to be locked, we knock and we keep on knocking all while asking and seeking. And this applies across the board in a prayer life. Like we don't just go to God and ask him to save our coworkers or our friends. Yes, ask for that gift. I want to encourage you, ask for that gift of salvation in the people around you, but then seek any and every opportunity to share the gospel. Way too often we're looking for an open door. You ever heard that? Just waiting for God to open a door for me. God's not necessarily waiting for you to look for an open door. He's not looking to open the door. He's going to show you the door and he wants you to seek for the search for the door. Go up to the door, see if it's locked. And if it is, knock. Now, I'm not telling you to go door to door with gospel tracks, but maybe if that's what God's calling you to do, I've done it. I'm not knocking it. See what I did? did? I've seen people come to Christ that way, legitimately. All right? But people often, this is my question with that, okay? I just want to take a time out on that one. Um, My question is, how many relationships do you have in your life right now that you have not asked God about, that you've not truly sought out or sought after and knocked on the door of? People that don't know him at all And you're looking to knock on the door of a stranger's house, which, praise God, I hope they come to Christ. But my point is, it's easy to grow numb and overlook the closest and most fertile relationships in our lives because we're not asking, seeking, knocking. Okay? And so people often perceive the walk of faith to be a passive one, but it's not at all. It's a willing, expectant, intentional life of asking, seeking, knocking, which does then mean it's a life of receiving, finding, and opening. So Jesus is calling us to this life of intentionality. A life following Jesus isn't just a life of do no harm. It's a life of asking, seeking, and knocking. Instead of waiting for others to do unto you, we look to Jesus, we ask, seek, and knock, engage, embrace, equip, empower, because that's what Jesus has done unto us. 
So we do unto others not just what we would have them do unto us, we do unto others what Christ has done unto us. So this is all ultimately the overflow of this cultivated rest and intentional relationship in Christ. So when you're anxious, when you're hurt, when you're struggling, we can take it to him. Ask, seek, knock. Like this doesn't just have to do with external things. It applies to our hearts. Like remember, the ultimate gift is more of God himself. And I'm going to close with this. Ask. Like ask for more of his spirit. Are, Are you asking for a deeper experience and identity in Christ? You think he wants to answer that one? I think he does. You might be shocked at how profoundly and dynamically he answers that. And then seek, like search for ways to grow closer to him, to love on his people and align with his heart, to fall in love with the things that he loves and align with his mission and purpose and even to just rest in who he is. You think he wants to provide that for you? I think he does. And then knock. Like once you identify that next step, take it. Don't wait for that door to open on its own. You may need to knock. It's part of the process. And that could look like signing up for the weekender, right? It could, it could like learning how to join the church. It may be asking about being baptized if you've never made that step of public proclamation in your faith and being baptized. It could look like that. It, it may be asking that friend that God has clearly probably put on your heart even now what they think about Jesus. You ever just ask him, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Just bringing up the name Jesus into a conversation, that name holds power. Just the name will open a door. You'd be surprised. But if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't know yet who Jesus is or know him as Lord and Savior, then I want you to know it's not a coincidence that you're here this morning. He has sought you out. And he's the one who's standing at the door of your heart. He's the one who's knocking. Will you let him in? Will you let him in this morning? Let's pray.